Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. The history of improvised music making in the United States is a long and vibrant one that can perhaps be best approached by listening to those who are engaged now in the preservation and extension of the formative threads of the tradition. In this conversation, presented on March 16, 2015, as part of the Works in Progress series, Mark Dresser and Taishan Sori consider their relationship with improvisation on the occasion of the 66th American Music Festival, Personal Visions, at the National Gallery of Art. Moderated by Roger Reynolds, guest festival director, the discussion explores how the vocabularies of creative expression can be investigated, manipulated, and experimented with by both composers and performing musicians. Improvisation is a discipline that is learned and exercised in more or less tightly shaped ways. Dresser and Sori explain breaking down barriers in terms of pulse, changing metrical units, and metrical modulation, the categorization of and physical relationship to instruments, and how the performance venue affects audience reception. In the first live music performance in the Works in Progress series, Dresser demonstrates the idea of altering tempo through the phenomenon of metrical modulation an alternative to the traditional 4x4 metrical unit. So the title of this uh, uh, festival, uh, Personal Visions, uh, opens a lot of territory. And today, what I'm hoping is that I will get to learn a lot about one of the territories in the vast American landscape about which I know less than I should know. And we have with us two very remarkable gentlemen who not only have personal visions, but are in the dynamic and continuing uh, circumstance of building and extending and modifying their visions as they interact with others. So I don't know who's going to start, whether it will be Taishan or Mark, but I've asked each of them to talk for uh, some time uh, then the other, then we have maybe a little bit of uh, uh, back and forth, and then open it to your questions. This is a, I have to say, this is an historic occasion. These two men are, in their own ways, in their own environments, uh, unique. So let's hear them. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for coming, and thank you, Roger, for inviting inviting me. I'm just honored and I'm thrilled to be sharing the stage with Taishan, who I have such high regard for as an innovative musician and composer and genius drummer who I've been following for quite a while. Um, you know, the, the, the idea of, of talking about my music, and particularly in relationship to the dra jazz tradition, is, a, is an interesting one and one that, uh, that at different times I've considered with different levels of being self-conscious about it. And, uh, but in the end, uh, you, know, you, you know, there have been times when I've called my music, it wasn't jazz, I've called it, embraced it as being part of the jazz, as jazz, but it's clear that I've been inspired by the tradition of jazz and by the great African-American masters who in many, many ways gave me the green light to, to ultimately, you know, to be myself 
And I've always felt that that was, you know, the, the dictate of the music, of music of personal expression uh, and of and a personal expression uh, to both as a both in the solo level and but most but more importantly in the collective level and it's this idea of a collective music that has always it was what brought me to music in the first place the the ability to uh, be my best self with others and uh, um, as a young man there have been you know, uh, there were people who really gave, really uh, inspired me. I mean, there have been so many, there are too many that I, that I won't be able to mention, but, you know, was as a teenager hearing the music of Charles Mingus in particular uh, really inspired me because of its expressivity and its... Uh, and express, you know, expressivity and expressionism, and the ability of take the bass and do unorthodox things with it, and to to play play the bass in a way that not in a slavish kind of way of being the support, but leading from the bottom. And it spoke to me on a, on a deep level. And it, it was and I was growing up. I'm 62, and it was at the same time hearing Jimi Hendrix gave me that same kind of inspiration. In fact, of expressivity and also of extending the sound world of the bass. When I heard uh, feedback guitar, it was very clear to me that you know to play uh, Potticello on the bass had that same sort of power to it. And uh, and these things that that I felt from when I, I could play by myself in the practice room, you know, uh, w w that would, I would be, that would take my attention and I'd find myself, mi not mindlessly, but o free-formingly improvising with, uh, uh, I started to take note of them and to develop them. And, uh, and then there were a lot of areas. So, for, for example, uh, you know, we were t talking about, I was mentioning the idea of feedback, you know, so, which was very analogous to me of playing close to the bridge, what we call it, ponticellos. <laughs> So it was th this kind of sound world that said like, well, what, what can I do with this? How can I bring this to the music? Or where is the music in this? And it sort of became for me a, uh, a process of discovering sounds and then kind of trying to find a broader musical context. And I think in many ways, it's sort of what brought me to, to composition. It was like, well, what do I do with this? What is the next step? You, you kind of you sit in the practice room and you play, and and and, and uh, I had the the good fortune of oh, oh, so many good fortunes, but uh, people who again say give me the green light, the permission to to be myself on the bigger level. Uh, and I think of. Um, uh, Bert Turetsky, who was my mentor and teacher in the bass, and also who introduced me to uh, Stanley Crouch, who I played with, and who introduced me to Bobby Bradford. I had the great honor to play with uh, the great American cornet player, uh, Bobby Bradford, who's 
well known for having played with John Carter and in his earlier and, and mid-career works with Ornette Coleman and being, again, inspired to find, uh, find my own voice and also to figure out a way to operate uh, within the, to, to, operate, to find a voice with, with a tr within a tradition. And, um, and it was really, it was odd in a way because my roots in the tradition were half formed. So we're, I'm playing in an in a avant-garde jazz situation in my early 20s and being, uh, and, pl and playing and finding myself in a situation where I found myself many times in my career, which has been, I really don't know what I'm doing, but I'm doing it. And this, and, and it's always been a moment of excitement and, and, and nervousness and uh, great, uh, and, and, and ultimately of great re reward. And um, so uh, from Mingus, there were, there, were, there, there were many important lessons for Mingus besides this, his incredible virtuosity and his ability to, to speak to the times and to speak and have this really forceful personality, which I don't feel I share that personality, but the, 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 the expressivity in the instrument I certainly did. On the, on the musical levels, one of the things that I loved about, I love about his music, was how he dealt with metric modulation, which is meaning the ability to change tempo within a music. Um, and so uh, I, started, I started experimenting with that first, I started experimenting with it in terms of you know, improvising and then uh, with my dear friend, the drummer, uh, uh, Jerry Hemingway, we spent many, many hours performing and exploring this, both in terms of our compositions and also just free improvising, trying to, trying to, trying to be able to shift gears in time, giving the illusion of changing tempo, whether or not we really were or not. Sometimes we were, sometimes we weren't. So in my own music, I started to, I came to, um, a point where I wanted to start to formalize this in a way, and from uh, the lessons of Duke Ellington, um, where uh, well, there are many, a couple, many lessons from Duke Ellington. But the, the one of the things that he did many times in his music is that he used the structure of the blues as a as a as a template for experimentation. So I thought that was something worthy of checking out. And so the idea was to create a, a blues that, that had the illusion of, of, of changing tempo, uh, again, through this convention of metric modulation. So a if I was gonna play a traditional blues in 4-4 four, four and B-flat, Etc. Etc. But I, so I, I, I created a, a form which, instead of that's a blues in four four, I created one that more or less changed, a change meters, in every, every bar essentially, and every time the meter changed, instead of, 
I would divide that meter into four equal subdivisions. So you've, it had kind of a parametric kind of expansion. So I'll play you, I'll play you a bit of that. So this is, so this, uh, well, I'll play for you maybe, yeah, let me play for you. So instead of going, I'm going to do this. So the idea, again, it was sort of to create this kind of um, playing with the grid of the 12-bar blues and using that as a, as, a, as a structure to play with this idea of metric modulation. So I wrote this tune called Digestivo, and uh, uh, we will probably play that tomorrow. I'll play you a little bit of it with the trio. And, um, and so... What I just, and so like I, what I played for you there was the, the opening chorus of it. And then I put a melody on top of that. And then for the improvising, uh, I, we use that, I use about four, four or five different rhythmic formulas that have, that have the same convention of after every four bars, which equals 16 beats, we're dividing that in different kinds of subdivisions. So a soloist can play with the subdivisions, play with the changing meters, or play with it in a macro sense and just pl and play in units of uh, four bars at a time. And they can sort of float over it because they, they, they could still track the blues as being the blues. So it sort of has, it's a sort of w a, a way of blending these traditions. So let me just play a little bit of this. Can you turn that up? Now this is why I just play for you. begin the improvising on this form.
reason I continued in this direction because it was engaging. It was engaging not only for myself, but it was engaging for the musician, my colleagues to play with. It somehow it was a kind of form that demanded uh, a new level of mu new level of musicianship. And and if you th if when I look at the so much of the history of of the music that it's been pushed by people who've um, who've brought who've brought the bar of musicianship up to a new level, and not, I'm not saying I, I was one of those, but I'm saying that I would compose in a way to challenge myself. So in a way, writing to my weakness. So, but it's something that would make me engage with a with a new challenge. So, at least with Digestivo, I had the potential. We were working with the grid of being four four da ba da ba da da. There's at least sometimes it went with here. I said, well, what if the next, what if I created a, 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 a blues that never went here, but this was sort of the, this was the underpinning of it. So I created this, uh, this piece called Aperitivo. In theory, the Aperitivo should have happened before the Digestivo, but instead I'd, it happened in reverse. So again, this, uh, instead of being a, a, a bar, uh, blues in 4-4, four, four, it's, a, it's a blues that goes from 7-4 from to 5-4 to 3-4 to 1-4 to 3-5-6, and 6-7-4, and et cetera. So it keeps changing, but never goes back to, we never go to 4-4. Four, four. So let me play you an excerpt of that. That was uh, the great uh, late soprano Alexander Montano, uh, my colleague of many years who will be here with me tomorrow night, uh, tomorrow afternoon, Demon Moroni on piano and Michael Serene on, on drums.
I sort of have a very interesting relationship um, to my instrument and to composition for that matter. Um, I think, well, first of all, I guess um, in, in, the, um, in the creative music community, I'm known as, you know, sort of this drummer who brings, I guess, I mean, I, I have, I guess you could say I have many degrees in which I deal with the instrument. I mean, it can be a totally chaotic sound world uh, sometimes to something where I barely ever play at all. And so it's this interesting sort of dialogical relationship with how, um, with how I compose in real time as well as, you know, as, as well as formal composition. So I guess, I mean, and there's so many different avenues that I have explored um, over the years of my entire career. I mean, there were so many different things that I've done uh, over the course of my career, it is, it's really hard to focus on a particular one. But um, I guess one of the things that um, just going along the same trajectory that Mark uh, just uh, spoke in was that just drawing from not only, I mean, not only so-called jazz, I mean, uh, like a, a lot of the music I've studied uh, during my during my upbringing was you know there there was music that was on the radio of course and there was a lot of pop music and R and B music and that kind of thing and I would listen to that music quite a lot I would also listen to a lot of tradi uh, a lot of uh, jazz and that kind of a thing my my dad had a uh, really good record collection and so I would listen to almost everything that was in there I mean it could range everywhere from from jazz to new music to you know all kinds of different things. And so I'd sit there, I mean, I'd, I'd sit there, you know, hours a day, like just listening, you know, to some of that music uh, coming up. And what happened was I just, I decided, I guess late, um, like around my early 20s, I decided to try to find a voice of my own because, I mean, what, what I've been doing was I would go to these jazz camps and I would go to you know some of these programs and everything and get into ensemble playing situations where uh, people would hand me music, you know that was quite complex to play and everything. And I guess I've been known to sort of be able to sort of internalize you know some of that music on the spot and that kind of a thing. And so I was known to do that. And so you know so what these what some of these teachers would do you know, who are like really accomplished band leaders and composers, they would put very complex, challenging music right in front of me and just, you know, all right, we'll deal with this. And so when, when we would perform the music, I mean, I'd, I'd have it together and everything, I'd listen, you know, if, if there were other, if there were previous recordings of that music, I'd go and study them and listen to them um, quite a lot. and. Um, and any time that they would put a composition in front of me, um, if there was a drum part, there would usually there would hardly be any like sort of detail in the music. There would hardly be anything, <laughs> you know, in, in indicating you know what you know what I should do, right. and this kind of a thing. So what I oftentimes would do is I would ask for a score um, every time, just see everything that's going on. So it'll help me to play drums a lot better, you know what I mean, on the music. And so, um, and so, eventually, all of this, all of these experiences, and my uh, musical upbringing, and listening to um, musics of s several different genres and different people, um, and playing in all kinds of situations, I was never really closed into 
participating in any ensemble playing situation. I mean, I've played in so many different um, genres and traditions. I mean, gospel being um, the one that I came up in, um, as well as jazz, as well as avant-garde music, as well as new music, classical music. I mean, I've done, I've done it all, <laughs> as one might say. Um, but anyhow, so just having done that, um, that sort of led me to composition. And, um, and I began to, I mean, I began to seriously, um, because I've listened to some of the work of the Second Viennese School um, before I got into college, I went to college at William Patterson University. And it was there where I basically started to cultivate um, sort of a compositional voice. I had listened a lot to the music, uh, extensively to the music of Schoenberg, um, as well as that of uh, Stockhausen and um, Anton Webern and all of these you know, brilliant composers, uh, pre-war and post-war, um, listening to a lot of that music. And so it also led me to, um, I, I was working with a drum teacher, uh, Kevin Norton, who you know. And, um, and so we worked together and, and I was one of his students and he turned me on to, uh, to the work of Anthony Braxton. Now, I had learned of Anthony Braxton's music before I studied with Kevin, but when I studied with Kevin was when it really sort of solidified, you know, what, uh, what of his music I should get to understand and get to know. And come to find out, when I started to listen, like really study his music seriously, um, I also began to discover that there was, there was a sort of kinship that was there. Uh, with me, with me and Anthony, because Anthony was is also a very open-minded musician, and who is interested um, in investigating uh, many different styles of music and everything in order to create his own language out of you know out of assimilating all of these different languages. You know, and he would sort of create his own you know sort of vocabulary, and he had been doing that for some 40 years, <laughs> you know, yeah. or something by that point. So, to me, this was something that. I felt was important for me, you know, as, as a musician and as a composer. Now, getting back to my relationship with the drums, as I was saying, I mean, the, the drums, and it's, it, it, there's, there's something about it, like just, like, just kind of like a social categorization, if I may, um, where, like, you know, it's, it's like fighting what the natural social categorization of that instrument defines uh, one to be, where, you know, you have to sit at a drum set and you have to, like, be the timekeeper, or you have to be some sort of, um, you know, you have to be the, the back burner, you have to really be the person who's, you know, really putting a fire under everybody and this kind of a thing. I mean, this is the kind of environment, you know, that I sort of came up in. And so when I got into composition of my own work, what I wanted to do was to create a sound world that contradicts all of that, you know, essentially to, um, to fight against these categorizations. Because um, oftentimes, as I said before, I've been called to do all of this very highly complex music and would play, you know, very, uh, very difficult music where, you know, it would be mixed meters or it would be these prime meters or this right. kind of a thing. And I wanted to create a music of my own eventually that sort of did away with all of that, you know, where, where I barely played the instrument at all. And what it did, was it, what that did for me was it, it definitely altered my relationship um, of the drum set, but more importantly, it also got me to become more aware of some of the acoustical properties of the instrument. If there were a drum set here, I could demonstrate that. 
but um, but that but you know like the, to to talk about things like the fundamental pitch of a drum or the overtones of a cymbal and that kind of a thing and seeing where um, seeing where those frequencies you know come from and what you actually hear up close and how they function in rooms and this kind of a thing. So this led me to you know start investigating the drum set. Uh, on a whole different level. And this began with my um, first release entitled That Knot, uh, which was released in 2007. And um, it was there when I started not only to, you know, because I've assimilated, you know, a lot of different styles and vocabularies and different things like that too. And I've studied, you know, a lot of, a, a lot of the music of people like, I mean, a lot of American composers since we're, uh, talking about American music, I mean, particularly the music of Morton Feldman, uh, which has, um, which for me, he's, he remains probably my biggest uh, influence um, in terms of um, all of the music that I've been doing as, as of late. Um, and so his music in particular has, has struck something in me where, you know, it's okay to, you know, to go outside of what of what you're you're categorically known to do, or you know, it's it's okay to definitely go outside of that, even if you don't know how you're gonna do it. You you should do it anyway. You should you should explore you should explore that anyway. And um, in 2009, I began to uh, study composition formally with Anthony Braxton and Alvin Lucier at uh, Wesleyan University, and uh, that was where I um, got my master's degree. And it was through that program that also I've sort of been reassured as what you were saying, like kind of being yourself, you know, like being reassured, you know, give, given, given the freedom to really be yourself. At the same time, um, the great thing um, about Wesleyan and my time there, as well as currently at Columbia University where I'm doing my uh, DMA in music composition, I think, um, by having that sort of uh, freedom, there was also the challenge of, you know, perhaps writing about my work and discussing my work in a way that can make sense to others as opposed to only myself. Um, because oftentimes, to, uh, for some of the composers whose work I've studied and whose work I consider to be masterpieces, sometimes, you know, the language that they speak can sometimes, you know, uh, affect the reader or affect the listener. Um, depending on the context, you know, sometimes it could affect them in a way where they won't ever get to understand, you know, where that composer is coming from. And also, also the whole thing with the press and how that functions uh, with regards to uh, composition, especially if you're dealing with social categories and, and dealing with um, this sort of, this sense of belonging in whatever musical category you want to put yourself in. I mean, this, that also sort of challenges that, you know what I mean? This also sort of challenges the press in terms of, you know, you the composer, you yourself have to, you have to be the person to define what it is that you're doing. You can't let other people define that for you because if you let other people define that for you, then you will again be categorized and you will, you will again be put into this, into this sort of box to which, you know, as a composer and as a performer, I wouldn't want to put myself in any kind of box. Um, and so those were the challenges that I've been, that I've been dealing with. And so um, I guess maybe I'll play, um, I'll play an example um, from my recent CD called Alloy. 
and um, it's music for piano trio. And um, I just want to maybe talk a little bit about the dialogic relationship between um, improvisation and composition in this instance, where um, you have, I mean, I guess the, the name of the composition is called Template. And um, the piece is pretty much, is almost through composed, but the only thing that, that has improvisation in this composition is the drum part. But even the drum part itself, you know, it has certain, certain rules and different things like that um, for, for which I use. Um, I have to switch uh, certain sticks at certain times, or I also have to uh, do some things with deafening the snare drum and, and taking a, a towel off of the snare drum and this kind of a thing. Um, but the content itself um, is all improvised. Um, the piano part and the bass part, however, are all through composed uh, throughout the entire piece. And so, so this was something that, you know, this was something that I was sort of, sort of getting into around that same period, around 2007, 2008, where I would, you know, sort of deal with these interesting behaviors with composition. And, you know, just because it's a piano trio or whatever, it doesn't mean that we all, you know, sort of just, you know, we play the composition and then there's an opportunity to sort of take solos and that kind of a thing. I didn't really want to create that sort of environment. Um, for this for the CD that I was for the CD that I was doing and so what I did was for the entire CD I had all of these particular sort of behavior relationships with uh, composition and improvisation where you know a, a lot of what was done by the pianist would be improvised I mean there's there's all kinds of different behaviors throughout the entire CD and so this particular one is going to involve um, a piece where the drums are in, entirely improvised but the other two parts are not so I just want to, I'll play some of that. And um, I mentioned Morton Feldman as an influence. Um, part of this also goes to um, playing cards as well. Like <laughs> I, I, used to, I used to play a lot of cards uh, coming up. And so and the shuffling of cards, I think, was, you know, was, which, that was another interesting uh, thing for me that was highly influential and everything. Like the shuffling of cards and the order of things or putting things in, you know, in different orders and that kind of a thing. And so that's where this piece also comes from. So you, and so you can look at a card table or whatever sort of as a template to really deal with so many different order relationships, you know what I mean, all at once. And so what I wanted to do was to create a piece that sort of, that sort of deals with that. So I'm going to start from where the drums come in because there's an introduction before that. I think it's only about three, four minutes. We'll see how long.
So, uh, yeah, thank you. Um, so essentially what I did here was, you know, I basically tried to find uh, one thing that um, I studied with uh, Billy Hart, who's a master uh, jazz drummer and composer, and one of the things that I took with me when I studied with him uh, during that period in my early 20s when I was at William Patterson and going to these jazz programs, one of the things he told me was when you're writing music or when you're or when you're playing, it's not, you shouldn't really look at it as how many things you can do, but you should see it as how many ways you can do one thing. And so this is, uh, this composition to me um, expresses that uh, pretty thoroughly, uh, just because, I mean, like there was, like what I try to do is, I don't try to find as many possibilities or maximize the number of possibilities before I write the piece. What I do is I try to take, you know, or try to limit myself to a certain collection of sounds and everything and just only work with those um, as, 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 I, as I begin the process of writing. And so, um, and I guess this was sort of a groove-oriented context or whatever in relation to my drumming. This is, this is a more sort of groove-oriented composition. But at the same time, um, when Anthony Braxton talks about gravity, um, in, in, in solos performed by people like Warren Marsh and people mm. like that. Um, um, it's like what he's really talking about like, is this constant shifting of time or this constant sort of, uh, this constant sort of shifting of weight, I guess you could say, in the time and that kind of a thing. And so what I wanted to do was kind of express that idea here um, because it inspired me you know, to sort of do that in my own drumming practice uh, to sort of get into these, you know, sort of different ways of thinking about time and everything, and at the same time try to do something personal with that, you know, to, to, to try to do something that I felt, you know, that, that I felt was personal and that was direct and that could um, sort of get into that. And so all of, all of these different things have applied uh, when, when, when I wrote that particular work, but I mean, there's so many others, I mean, that I could talk about this type of thing with and everything. I mean, because as I said, I don't really think of it as, you know, you have to start a piece and exhaust every single idea possible. Like, I want to leave room for, you know, for other pieces to follow after that. Um, and so, Speaking of that's leaving it. Room, <laughs> we, my responsibility is to leave a little bit of room here for burning questions. Mm -hmm. But are there questions for these gentlemen? I have one very naive, novice question <laughs> Please. for our bassist here. Yes. Uh, I'm a bass hack. I admit, generally when I play with anybody, it, there's always a uh, discussion as well. But I, I recognize in your trio, you don't have a quote-unquote percussionist per right. You have a, a prepared piano, which in many ways is a percussion instrument. I recognize that. But I'm wondering, since we're so bound to the notion of a rhythm section, could you have the same kind of, as you call it, meter variety if you had to try to team up with a, a percussionist as well? I mean, I don't know quite how you would do that, because what few times I've done anything like that, it could be a problem. Now, when I work with a pianist alone, we can do a lot of things like you can do. Yeah. So could could you could we do, 
could the idea of metric modulation or these things that I was doing in the trio, could it be done where there is no explicit timekeeper and uh, you don't hear the grid underlying all the subdivisions? Sure, it's, it's much easier doing it with a drummer. In fact, the last thing that I played for you was with, with drums. And the, you know the drum the drums do provide that continuity, but I, I that that was one of the things to explore was how to you know I've always believed again that and this was something that Mingus uh, really made clear is that every instrument is an orchestra everyone every instrument can do every function and the thing that I love about whether it's playing with, uh, when it was playing with my trio, is every everyone has a rhythmic vocabulary, a melodic vocabulary. If it's the if it's Matthias Ziegler playing contrabass flutes, he plays drums on, which he can amplify because he has microphones inside of it. So, I hope that I've answered your question in part. Thank you. Thank you. Other questions, Stephen. Um, if a, a third person comes along and wants to perform one of your works. Uh, is there a score that a person who is not you can actually uh, develop from and do what you would have done? And I, I would address that to both of you. Well, okay, so the question was, uh, is there a score that someone else other than myself could, could Certain pieces, absolutely yes. Pieces I played for you, I had, they're almost like traditional lead sheets where it's not through composed, just the core material, the first 12, 24, or 30, what if, you know, a, a very s small amount of the music is represented. And sure, if you know the, yeah, someone else could absolutely uh, uh, perform that. And I, you know, I create uh, performance notes and I do share my music with other people or I bring other people into add another dimension to it, so yes. But there are other pieces that are through composed. Well, if, anyone, if they're through composed, then any, anyone who can read music could perform it. So but yes, the answer is yes. I have a similar response. Um, the only thing um, with, with, with my work is some, you know, I also write out sort of suggested drum parts for my materials for, for other drummers to interpret, but I always, because um, I don't like to think of myself as a composer who creates music and everything and like you can only hear the music if the composer is there. Um, I don't like to, I don't see myself as that kind of uh, composer. However, um, I'm also open to, you know, as many interpretations of my music as possible. I even argued um, on several occasions is, is that, well, I wish I could hear another drummer playing my music and then I play another part because I'm a multi-instrumentalist as well. I play piano and trombone as well. So, I mean, I, w I would have liked to, I would like to someday hear another drummer play my music and everything and, and see how that uh, works out and everything. Because I'm, I'm just curious to see how many possibilities uh, there are with, with that, with every interpretation. But yes, there are scores, um, you know, for you know, when it comes to my sort of improvisation or creative music based uh, material. Um, yes, that's, that is open things. As far as solo material, I mean, this is something that it gets to, you know, it gets complex there because, you know, there's, I mean, there's embodiment too 
I mean, I see composition not only as a thing that you do, but I see it as a thing that you live. I mean, there's, there's, like, hmm. there's like a certain embodiment that you have when you're creating uh, solo material. Like, you're, I mean, you're, you're becoming the instrument and the instrument, you know, you're playing the instrument and the instrument is playing you. And I right. see it in that way, you know, as well. So it varies. It definitely varies, but there, but there are scores available. In any case, uh, on Sunday, the opening uh, program of this festival, uh, there was a, a sort of beginning stage of a work that I'm involved with called Flight, which has to do with aspirations of mankind to lift off, as it were, and uh, whether that's physically or as these guys do in other ways. And uh, I wanted to start this second part by referring to a conversation I had with the cellist of Jack Quartet, Kevin McFarland. And we were talking about the idea that in this work of mine, which moves between uh, acoustic string quartet music and intermedial thing with voices and projections and uh, computer transformed sound and so on, said to Kevin, how would you feel if we got you away from your cello and ask you to do other kinds of things as a function of these intermediary uh, media sections. And he's, he, he's, he's a like, very open guy, right? And he said, well, I'd have to think about that because I have this relationship with my cello and I, as a musician, am embodied by that cello and with that cello. And he said, I'd really... I'd really have to think about how I would deal with performance if, if it weren't through the cello. And at the very end of our last session, Taishan was speaking about that word embodiment in relationship to percussion instruments. I don't know whether you were going to say anything like that, but I know, Mark, we've talked about this too. Could we talk a little bit, uh, maybe starting with you, Taishan, about your relationship to physical objects that make sound. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a very complex relationship, as I said in the beginning of the last uh, discussion. Um, and and, and uh, part of the reason is that openness, um, and part of, part of it is um, being open to the situation, but also, I mean, given um, that I'm also a touring musician, I do travel a lot and everything, and I encounter all kinds of problems uh, with all kinds of different instruments. I mean, each instrument that I get to has its own problem. And so uh, what I have to do then is find a way to deal with those problems and yet still put as much of myself into the musical situation as possible, even if it would mean not the exact same size instrument that I use or the exact same configuration um, of, of, of the instrument or anything. I have to put myself in the situation in that moment. And so when I talk about embodiment, I'm really referring to dealing with the physical attributes of whatever um, instrument you approach, no matter the condition and everything. But also at the same time, the sense of embodiment also gets contradicted in some of my own work, uh, as I was talking about. Uh, now, in the piece that I played earlier, um, template, like I'm playing drum set and there's, there's a lot of fast moving stuff that's going on. But there's some compositions, like as I said, where I hardly play any drums at all. I mean, for as much as 20, 30, maybe 40 minutes sometimes. And that's okay too, because I feel like, you know, I still feel like I'm playing the music. 
I mean, I don't feel like I have to play the instrument in order to participate in the process of creating. I mean, you can create, and I mean, it's basically, you, you, you're putting many people into a room and they're all speaking their individual languages and at the same time, one person doesn't say anything at all, but you don't know what to think of that person. You don't know if that person is actually communicating in, another, in, in their own way, or you don't know if that person is ignore. I mean, there's no way of knowing really. And so what I'm interested in doing is through the disembodiment is getting to that unknown space, is, is getting to that sense where, you know, you are communicating with your musicians and you are performing with your musicians, but you don't necessarily need the instrument to do that. You know, I don't think the instrument should serve as a, def as a defining aspect of, I guess, you know, sort of creating stuff, especially in real time. I mean, especially in, you know, real time spontaneous composition. I mean, I don't, I don't think that it's really necessary all the time for me to, you know, just play drums the, the entire time, you know, through something. Because then what that really says is that, you know, all I'm interested in is myself and, and what I'm playing and that kind of a thing. And that's not really uh, what I'm going for in my own music. And so, like I said, so it's, 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 a, it's a weird relationship because I, I interact in both worlds, you know. So I, I mean, I interact in situations where I'm playing nothing but a lot of drums, like through the, the whole thing. Or there's, there's times where I would just, I would like to really get into the sound of what's going on. And until I'm in, and, and, and until I'm able to get to that sound, I don't play anything. And you know, this is just—I mean—because now I'm changing the relationship uh, to the instrument. I'm I'm more I'm more or less interested in dealing with the drum kit not only as a rhythmic instrument but also as a sound instrument and also as an instrument that doesn't necessarily you know inherit the same char characteristics as any other. Um, any other sort of instrument with skin or something where you hit it or something. Like I'm interested in finding all of these other things in it that maybe often get overlooked in other performance situations that I find myself in. And that's why I write the music that I write, you know what I mean, is to kind of get into this other sound world that I would never get to otherwise, you know. That's really interesting. I have a really very different take on it. First of all, on the, on the question about embodiment, First of all, I think what's really different is that for me, the bass is my major vehicle of personal expression. And, uh, and composition just happened. Composition was not, I didn't study composition, I just made music for us to play because I had a need to do it. And it was something that just evolved out of like, oh, I'm going to do a concert. I, I need to, and I have these wonderful musicians who have agreed to do this concert for me. I better come up with something for them so I don't embarrass myself. <laughs> so, but the idea of playing, you know, the physical uh, relationship with the instrument has just been, it, it, it continues to reveal so much stuff for me. And it's sort of the, um, you know, the, the idea of like, you said you were talking about the overtones of the drums. It's sort of like mm -hmm. the overtones of the bass. This instrument is just so rich in sonic potentials that uh, uh, it's really what's kept me going. It's just I can't, I keep mining and there, I still keep finding little <laughs> trickles of, uh, of, of things that are new. And uh, it, anyhow, so 
within uh, I, within all the the minute I played, there there are a lot of different these this the, of, there, it's an engaging way for me to enter sound. I immediately, and again, we were talking about in the first session we talked about different ways towards approaching tempo pulse. For me, tempo is always going on in my body. It's, I ground to it, I distort it, I sometimes lose it, but it's, it, it, it's, it's sort of, it's going on in here, it keeps me calm, it makes me nervous, <laughs> you, know, it has, <laughs> you know, it has all those things going, but it's sort of the, the, like, you know, there are many things we study, you know, you try to be, learn how to, uh, to, 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 to activate the instrument in ways and you try to get better at it and you try to be try to find more dimensions to it um, and the idea and, and but sometimes you get something that happens out of a mistake and one of the things I played I, w I was had been practicing and somehow my finger slipped and the next one came and then all of a sudden I was able to get this kind of double glissando which normally Normally, when you pluck a note, it's a, there's not another one that comes from behind it. So out of a mistake came some, some gold, maybe. Maybe that's over-exaggerating, but uh, something of use. So, um, and again, the overtone series, the bass is so, when I first started playing, well, this is sound, but really, what we're really what's happening now is that the string is bowing the hair of the bow. So, that those are the overtones of the bow of the hair. Now it's intermingling with the fundamental of the bass. So, this, this has this kind of pursuit has, and the richness <coughs> and the kind of 50 years of playing the bass, this kind of manic self-absorption <laughs> with, uh, with an instrument has, has brought me to, uh, to collaborate with uh, musicians of like-minded like investigations. And so uh, the people I'm playing with on Wednesday uh, uh, Demi Maroney and, and uh, Matthias Ziegler have, have explored their instruments in very similar ways. And the ideas of manipulating and, and understanding both uh, the combination of what the implications of the overtone series, their, those ratios, and how that, Im all, how that uh, uh, the metaphor of those ratios implies metric and temporal relationships too. We've all been obsessed with that in different ways. And, um, you know, I, I first read about it in relationship to Henry Cowell's music. I heard it in terms of metric modulation and Mingus's music. When I heard Conlon Ankaro's music, I completely wigged out. That, that, that just, it was a way that, it, it, it really inspired me. It sort of, again, affirmed what I had already been feeling but taken to a, another level. So the idea of working with musicians with vocabularies that I, studied, and I've written, I've been playing with uh, Demi Maroney since 1985, and Matthias Ziegler uh, since 1994. 
and I, 1993 maybe, in 1994 I wrote him a piece, uh, he commissioned me to write him a piece for, he plays multiple flutes and string quartet and bass, so I wrote him a piece called The Banquet. And then uh, from that, I, let me just play you a little bit of it, the, the last movement, This is a flute condenso, improvised flute condenso. I'm going to interrupt this. So, I regret that, but time is time. Okay, so, the, what came from, the idea of this tune was, became, the, 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 the core information of this tune became this piece which I played in the first session, but I've been asked to play again mm -hmm. called Digestivo, which is based, which, which would I, the, oops, the, um, the idea of, of having a, a metric modulating form. And so uh, what changed is that in this piece where I used it, uh, here it is in context of the string quartet. So the idea of taking the, what, the, what the end of that tune was and taking the, actually with the materials of that 
of the beginning of that tune and putting them together as a structure to improvise has always been, you know, as part of the jazz canon. You take something, you, you improvise theme and variation. It's not your normal, it turns out to be a blues and B flat ultimately. <laughs> and, but I used it as a, a way to, to investigate metric modulating uh, a 12-bar blues that has the macro structure of a 12-bar blues in which each four, each four bars goes to a major harmonic underpinning that uh, I could describe, but I think just... And so the basic macro structure of, the blue, of, of a 12-bar blues and this are identical. So a soloist can imp interact with it in a couple different ways. So here's what we've, when I've taken that thing and put it towards a trio version, it's become something like this. This is the introductory material. Improvising on this structure. Same metric structure as the opening. And then there are variations after it where I've sort of shuffled the deck, as the <laughs> Taishan mentioned, where it, it's doing the same game but in a different way. So it's given us a, you know another set of challenges to, to juggle around and So this goes on. I also wanted to open the door to another issue that yeah. has come up in the background here. Okay. We're talking about time management and, <laughs> and so on, and uh, embodiment. Yeah. Uh, another thing you mentioned, uh, Taishan, a couple of times is this kind of uh, categorization, social categorization, other kinds of categorization. And this must be something that is really major thing in both of your lives. Like, where does the music I want to make go? And is there a structure of some sort uh, that one can put it in uh, comfortably? I mean, when I grew up as, a, as a, an aspiring composer, which is uh, quite a long time ago, uh, we thought there were pretty obvious places that we could put our music. Mm -hmm. It's not so clear anymore, and particularly with people who are extending their visions in the particular ways that you are, where do you put it, and does it matter that there is or isn't a place 
and by place I mean metaphorically speaking, to put it. In fact, um, I would like for it to be in places where you normally would not find uh, such music. Case in point, um, I recently composed a uh, composition for, for flute and contrabass clarinet and B-flat clarinet. Mm. It's a duo. And, um, and so I composed this piece and we performed it at, at a space uh, called Issue Project Room, which oh, yeah. was in, in Brooklyn, New York. And it's sort of like, it's, it's, the acoustics are very nice um, in the space and everything, and it's, it's a very loud space. And what that did for the work, I think it gave it a certain sort of visceral quality to it that you normally would not get if you were in a concert hall setting. And that was interesting to me because, you know, when, um, when I compose certain pieces and everything, you know, I, I like to see how they work in, in situations that aren't the most comfortable, you know, because I think when you take situations like that, the performers then of those works are forced to sort of, you know, to, to deal with the music really as directly as possible, you know what I mean, when they're in situations where they're not comfortable. Um, I find that uh, to be the case. And so what I want to do, I, want, I just want to play a few minutes of this recording uh, in this room. And because if you were to listen to this work in a concert hall, I mean, the, the effect that you get, the sort of, like, you, you won't get the same uh, sort of emotional quality that you would get in a work like this if it were to happen in a concert hall. So the performers, like I said, they're, they're often forced to find many other ways to deal with the music besides the one way that they gotten fixated with. So let me just play oh, sure. uh, a little bit of that. And by the way, this this also like just in terms of genre, this also deals with the you know as I talked about the dialogical relationship between composition and improvisation. Here, this piece is through um, is 100% through composed. There's only well not 100%, but there's a small section, a very small section that is improvised, but it's almost unified in such a way where you can't tell what's improvised or what's composed um, here, even though about 99% of the material is all through composed. Like it's, it's hard to really distinguish, which is, you know, which is, which is what gives um, the music its visceral quality as well, I think. And so, uh, let me just play a little bit of this.
So to present something like this, let's say if we were to play this in some kind of bar or someplace, you know what I mean? Some, like people wouldn't know, you know, what to think of it, you know what I mean? And, and but that's exactly what I want is this sort of, you know, this this sort of thing, you know, where both the audience and the performers are uncomfortable all at the same time because then what what happens just socially it just sort of unifies them into this experience that, you know, they don't know what's going on, but whatever it is, they have to be in tune with it at all times. And I think, you know, creating pieces like this, I think, and, and putting them in situations that, you know, that really do not allow for this type of expression or this type of exploration is, is, um, is, is something that I think will be, in the end, I mean, pretty much rewarding for all music, I feel. Um, and so, you know, this this is the type of thing that I always look for, um, you know, in terms of, you know, in terms of this idea of belonging versus a disbelonging to a particular space, as it were. Um, like this music, you know, I, I mean, obviously, if people were to, you know, if people were very narrow-minded about it or whatever, like one would say, okay, well, this should only be done in the concert hall and it should only be played by you know, X, Y, Z, only, only these performers and everything. But I don't really like to see my work in that way. I mean, these are, these are two um, excellent performers, uh, part of the Tuck Ensemble. Um, uh, these uh, two, uh, the flute, flute players, Laura Cox, and the other person is uh, Liam Kinsom, who's playing contrabass clarinet and regular uh, clarinet on this recording. And um, if I were to give this to like another group of performers, like a Claire Chase or somebody like that, uh, or a group like Ice International Contemporary Ensemble, um, because they normally play, you know, new music compositions outside of the concert hall too. I mean, they play, you know, in any venue. They play house concerts. I mean, they play all kinds of situations, and um, and the music itself, like the expression of the music itself, oftentimes is altered. It's always altered, no matter what place, you know, where where they perform in. And so that's what I'm interested in, is to have that openness and everything, just in terms of where a piece belongs and where it doesn't, you know. Mark? Well, <laughs> um, the opportunity to have choices of where to play one's music, in my experience, has been a privilege, meaning that more often than not, I can't choose where I'm, my music is going to be played. I'm just, it's an assertion of will to get it played to begin with. So any mm. place I can play it is the right place, right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, uh, and I'm thrilled when we have these, you know, uh, rare opportunities to have an ideal situation. I'll, it's, it was a thrill of a lifetime in 99 to have a, to have a, a piece I wrote for uh, Demon Maroney and Mary Rowell pr premiered at the, uh, at the Library of Congress as part of that historic series. That was, to play in acoustic, pristine acoustics was just, I, st I still get goosebumps thinking about it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so I think the, the basic prerequisite of, is that you wanna be in an environment where people listen, because without listening, there's, there's nothing, it's just it, it, everything, I mean, there's it's just more noise. So, um, and there are musics that speak better in a, in a more casual listening environment than others, but even those walls have been broken down as now uh, performers are 
have even, the options are becoming more and more narrow as in a way as uh, as it becomes more and more difficult to especially for a young artist to emerge to define their own music I want to harken back to an earlier discussion about you know composing for a particular vocabulary and I mentioned working with Matthias Ziegler and uh, and Demon Maroney who have very particular vocabularies that I've spent a lot of time studying and learning how to uh, express to them through notation but more often through text description I can write to compose for them in sort of metaphoric terms timelines but I don't have to if I write a multiphonic I don't have to give the fingering for Matthias to play I trust his ability to to orchestrate to find the best one so I want to play you just a bit of this piece I wrote for the trio called Sonomatopoeia Stop there. This is a way, you know, the, composing for these guys, and, then, and this sort of makes me uh, take back a step to the answer I gave to Stephen about could this be played by, would my score serve as a blueprint for someone else to play it? It could, but we would get a very different result. Uh, I, be, the question was, is your score, could your music be played by other people? And my answer first was absolutely yes. And I guess my answer still is absolutely yes. But uh, what my score tells the performer is not the every specific detail. It talks about vocabulary, it talks about range, it talks about relative densities. 
but even we will perform it differently every night that we play it. In fact, we, we will play this on Wednesday afternoon. Um, I'll leave it at there. I think uh, we should probably leave a few moments for any questions in the audience. And, and if there aren't a lot, then I would like to uh, ask uh, Tyshawn and Mark to ask each other questions. And if you can't come up with any, I can. <laughs> <coughs> so anybody have something that they've been wondering about? Yes, please. Mm -hmm. and who are, are having more access to, to putting together presentations that are varied um, musically, uh, to artistically, aesthetically. Um, but for me, the, the challenge always seems to really get people to know that this music is around, that there are people that are starkly not not beholden to any sort of particular box. They're, they're trying to express themselves or in, 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 in present their own originality through their work that doesn't necessarily, um, isn't beholden to any particular genre. So I'd, I'd, I'd like to know sort of like how you've been able to um, sort of navigate that, that realm. Like, I don't know how, how much you've done in terms of putting together your own presentation to create these, um, these situations where you're really, or, or if you even feel like you have to reach out to other people um, exploring, I guess, even more popular um, genres mm -hmm. to, to sort of bring them in to what you're doing, um, just through the press or through the audience or through fellow musicians. That's, I mean, that's well, this is a whole range of extremely interesting and important questions. Can you try, Tyshawn, oh, to sort of... <laughs> um, okay, well, given that there is a trend out here um, of, um, of composers and different people presenting music in venues that are other than uh, concert halls and things like that, given that there is a growing trend of that going on, the question was, how did I come, you know, how did I come to the point of thinking of the performance of my compositions in certain venues the question is how did i how did i come to this you know uh, way of thinking i guess my answer is um through even through my compositions in improvisational music where um i first uh, when i when i first worked with anthony braxton this goes back to my uh, meeting him in 2002 sometime where we did a recording together um, of a uh, saxophone student um, of his, we we did a we did a recording together, and so I was talking to him, and I had you know I had by that point had written some like maybe five or six tunes or whatever for a ja you know for like a jazz quintet or something like that, none of which I liked, and so what I did was I told him about this, and you know, and I was having a lot of trouble you know kind of rehearsing some of these some of this music. I mean I didn't have any particular players in mind. 
who I wrote for, I would just write these things, and they would oftentimes, you know, be, be there would be some difficulty <coughs> with uh, performing the music. That's just how I heard things. But then I got discouraged, and I felt like, you know, well, this isn't going to happen now. You know what I mean? So I may as well just give up composing and just be this, you know, working drummer or something, and that would be it. And what Anthony told me was that, well, no, you should keep writing the music you're writing and keep writing everything you're hearing because if there is one person out there who can do the music, then you give you give the music to that person and then have them play with you and this and that. And so this proceeded into a book of some 40 compositions for this jazz quintet that's known to some um, as the Group Oblique. We, there's some 40 compositions um, that are in that book and you know they're very rigorous. The, the music is very rigorous harmonically. It's very challenging technically, um, at least for saxophone players. It's very, <coughs> very challenging music. It's a whole other way of dealing. And so we would perform this music in this club um, called Zebulon. Um, they were the first people to, um, to give me a performance opportunity anywhere. And so I presented this music for the first time, you know, for, for the first time in this club. You know, there's people drinking and there's people like just sort of mingling in there. And, and um, but the owners there of the club, they, they I mean, these, these were a couple, of, a couple of French intellectual guys or whatever, like kind of running this place. And, um, you know, so we're sitting there having beer and they were telling me about how they were so much into the music that they've heard nothing like that in that club before and this and that. And so they invited us back. And so we, we kept performing there for week, you know, we, we, we play there maybe twice a month. And word had gotten out, you know, that we would be performing this really complicated sort of, you know, this chamber sort of music or whatever in this space, you know, where there's all this drinking and there's all this stuff happening. And we, and, but we were able to develop our language, you know, I mean, this was, this went on for some, maybe a couple of years, like that we would be there sometimes, you know, sometimes once a month, sometimes twice a month, you know, give or take a few days. But um, ultimately, this is when I thought, wow, so I don't necessarily have to present this music, you know, at a, at a jazz venue, a so-called jazz venue, or a venue that's sort of established as, you know, as something that's created to present music of that medium. I mean, I can present this music anywhere, and then, and then people started getting more into it. You know, a lot, more people started coming to the concert, and then it got to a point where people only came to see that concert. <laughs> you know, at, at, at the bar, you know, at this bar. You know, so it's like, well, okay. You know, so that got me to start writing for, you know, for other configurations and for other type, types of ensembles and everything. And I figured, well, let me try this for, you know, some other groups and everything. And so far, that, that, that has been really successful for me, and it's been refreshing with every result. Uh, you want to? You have anything to add? Or also, anything? getting the word out. I think uh, that's another thing that I think uh, was. It it's yeah. it's an issue for everything now, which is not already in a box. How do we, how do we disseminate information? How do we about events? How do we disseminate the records, the things which would have happened? How do we try to capture something? Mark and I actually gave a course a couple of years ago yeah. called mm. Transcending Place and Time and wrestling with this stuff. So yeah. not metaphysically, but practically. Yeah, what do you do? How do you I mean, get uh, the word out? I mean, ultimately, one has to perform 
for music to come to life. And any way possible has been my uh, MO. You know, so you, you, because the music happens with people there. And, uh, and any opportunity has been a good opportunity for the music to grow and develop and for me to have the opportunity to, to grow it. And then how to get the word out. Well, that, you know, th th this is the domain of uh, PR experts. But one thing that, that I, I really learned, uh, really, you know, from, from Roger in a, is the importance of, ne of always thinking of what the ideal situation is. So often, so often we're put in situations, well, how can I just get the job done? Rather than thinking, well, what would be the optimum way to go there and start working there, start at that and pushing that as hard as you can, and then see, well, okay, what is, what, what is possible? You know, rather than say, well, I'm gonna make something happen, let's call Joe to record it. You know, I mean, rather than doing everything on the, you know, guerrilla warfare level, you know, so, yeah, that's the short answer. Can I, Quick question. We have to end, but maybe this will be the last question. Well, that's a good question, and you know, and this is one that you know, I mean, social media. The word gets out. You're here. You you know, uh, it just happens by being persistent by being persistent and consequent in your actions, and that someone knows that oh. This is a person to, of consequence. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast. 